take me right back to the trap. Jack. Batter up, hear that call. The time has come for one and all to listen to the A League of Their Own recap podcast. I'm your host, Carolyn Bergier, and if you haven't already, please give this podcast a follow on Instagram at League of Their Own Pod, and make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Rate it five stars. You know the drill. I am so happy to be back from some traveling and able to dive back into this series that, as of this recording, still has not been renewed for a second season. Insanity! That means that we have to keep talking about it and making sure our friends, our families, our enemies, our frenemies watch it. Host a watch party yourself. Let Prime Video know that we need more League. Okay, today I'm recapping episode 7 called Full Count. It's directed by Silas Howard and written by Sanaz Tusi. And I am joined by one of the show's staffed writers who has such great takes on this episode and the characters. They're a writer, director, and filmmaker who recently directed four episodes on the upcoming season of The L Word, Generation Q. Coming up to the plate, let's hear it for M. Weinstein. M. Weinstein, thank you so much for joining me to recap episode seven yes. of A League of Their Own. Thank you. Wow, we made it this far. <laughs> we did. Episode seven. Such a great episode written by my very dear friend, Sanaz. Yes. So you just told me you're based out of Philly? I, uh, I'm i like half Philly, half LA. Um, yeah. Well, a third New York. I know it doesn't all add up, but uh, <laughs> I um, my fiance is in medical school in Philly and I moved here during the pandemic and like fell in love with it. It's such a amazing, lovely town and... Um, now that everyone in in Hollywood is back in person, I like have been spending a lot of my year in LA, but I just got back here and it is such a wonderful little home. And we I wrote all of League from this desk. Um we were on oh my in 2020 and um there were a lot of Philly folks in the room, mainline, but you know, they count. Abby Jacobson and Melanie Field are both Philly right, right. There's just a lot of a lot of Philly love. Um, so it feels it feels right to be talking to you sitting at this desk. Um, yes, I love that. What was that like having to do the writers' room over Zoom? Because I know like, some of my friends who are writers, they did like it because it gave them the flexibility to not have to be in LA. Yeah, and which, by the way, gorgeous time to come back to Philly or the oh, Northeast. God, so nice. September, October, beautiful. But also, I'm obsessed with this entire writer's room. Oh, like, too. what a bummer <laughs> to not be in the same physical space, right? Yeah, but we got we got really close. And yeah. it was so cool that everyone was all over the world. Like, Desta was in Germany throughout the writer's room um, with her wife and kids. Um, Bemi, who plays Clance, was in, yes. was in London. Um, there were Sanaz and Morgan were in New York. I was in Philly. Um, Will was traveling all over the place. Like he would call in and we'd be like, where are you now? Like he was <laughs> all over the place. Um, Abby was in LA, uh, but it was just really amazing. Cause it also felt like we were all bringing in, that's the, the best thing about a writer's room is like, you're all bringing in your own experiences and your own stories. Yeah. And so much of the room is like sharing personal stories and things that happen to you. And it just like 
felt really cool that we could all be like, well, I in London today, this is what was going on. It was in the height of the pandemic. And it was like, so we all had this like very shared experience, but in like all across the world. And it was, right. I don't know. I, um, I really like Zoom writer's rooms. Obviously I'm like a little biased because I also kind of like to be a little hermit in Philly. Um, but there's something about it that like, enables people to live in the real world um not to not to shit on LA which is also the real <laughs> world but um it's a it's a very different world um than the rest For of sure. the world and I at least like find a lot of inspiration and joy in being being not in LA and uh right right we got to be there are definitely like things that took longer it like took longer for us to develop to develop a shared language like we didn't we couldn't interrupt each other as much because on zoom there's like it's weird and there's silences and also like when you're pitching you can't really tell what hits and what doesn't whereas in a right person you're like oh so this crazy thing happened to me and everyone goes like like but everyone's on mute so you're just sort of like was that the stupidest thing I could have ever said or, um, but you know, I, there's, they're an amazing group of people and I've gotten to spend time with all of them in person now. And, um, they're exactly the same as they were on zoom. Like, so sure. Uh, I don't know. Uh, sorry. I could go on for, for hours about that writer's room. It was, it was delightful. And just like the most people would be happy for you to go <laughs> on for hours about <sighs> the fans of the show literally can't get enough. I mean, I feel bad that I even haven't gotten all of the recaps out yet. I've been traveling and people are like, where's the next episode? Where is the next? I'm like, Like, (laughs) that's awesome. I, yeah, it, it's like all I've ever wanted to do is like talk about queer history and like reach queer people and like make communities spaces for queer people. And like the fact that the show is like able to do that a little bit, like I've never been more ecstatic about about anything um i've been a part of than like just interacting with people about this show because it's just like oh it's really hard to be a queer person in the world right now it's really hard to be a trans person it's hard hard to be a queer person of color it's hard to exist i mean it's hard to be a woman like it fucking sucks so i'm just glad that like we get to like have a little community around this little television show because yeah, bleak out there, and it's the show has a lot of a lot of joy. Oh, it's given people so so much joy. Speaking of the the writers' room and the makeup of the writers' room, one thing I found interesting about it, and I don't know, I mean, I know it varies from show to show, but it feels like a lot of the writers for league have theater backgrounds theater writing backgrounds including you yeah so tell me more about like your your background and your journey to getting staffed on league awesome um yeah it was my first staffing job it sort of started my started my career in television in a in a lot of ways um i uh was this like theater kid uh for sure i wanted to be a theater director i went to Yale Drama School, which, you know, there's many episodes of famous Yale Drama School. Oh, yes. yes. It's been it's been great, uh, great fodder for therapy for the last uh last few years since since leaving that place. Um uh it it uh and 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 I and I love um I love queer spaces and, and queerness and actually Yale Drama School was a very, very toxic environment to be a, a AFAB trans person for me. Um it's and I sort of came out of that institution like feeling very um hungry for queer uh fellowship and queer friends and like an ability to express my my gender identity and my like passions especially about like lesbian uh and afab like queer histories um 
the theater is very dominated by cis gay men and they're wonderful people but uh there wasn't there wasn't a lot of space for other stories and i wrote my first pilot which is called slacks which is a story about a gay bar um in the 1960s that gets raided at the end and it's sort of this whole story about discovering this gay bar and this young kid who's 16 at the time like falling into this whole other world um and i wrote that pilot like unsure that anyone was ever going to read it um i didn't have any Hollywood connections other than like uh, some friends who worked in TV um, as playwrights. And um, I got a really, I had a theater agent and I got a really amazing TV agent with the script and uh, it it turned out to be like this perfect sample for a league. Um, And uh, one day, hopefully maybe it will get made or, or I can share it with, with folks because it, it takes a lot of the story of episode six and like expands on it. Um, But yeah, so that, that script is like how I got into the room. I didn't really know anyone. And I just had a, an agent who like knew, uh, knew Will and like pushed him and pushed him and pushed uh, him to read the script. And Will's just a delightful person. And yeah, it gave me a chance. Both him and Abby are just, yeah. I mean, Abby's a, Abby's a hero of mine um, and always yeah. has been. It was a really... Imp- that Philly connection. Yeah. But it really was just like, yeah, this little, little queer script that got me in. And uh, I am really, really, really grateful to have been a part of that room. And another thing I want to mention, just because the poster is right behind you, Mm. you also, you direct, you write your short film in France. Michelle is a man's name, got like a bunch of festival awards and everything. I've actually seen it. Oh, thank you. Uh, Thanks for watching. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. Again, back when I I mentioned to M before that I had uh, come across them and looking for for guests for diking out, and hopefully we'll make that happen very soon. I love that. So so much of your work is queer and trans storytelling, and that's amazing that you get to do that. What a dream! Amazing. I feel really really lucky, Um, and. Also, I want I want more uh, more queer and trans <laughs> stories to be told, and I am like really hungry to keep like help holding up more uh, more queer and trans artists, especially like queer and trans artists of color who like are vastly underrepresented in Hollywood. Um, and we just like we just need more stories. There's like if if league has done one thing, it's like hopefully start to kick open a door for more queer and trans uh, storytellers. And like, it's not easy in Hollywood to be queer. It's not easy to be trans. And um, I, yeah, my deepest goal is to just like get, get far enough up in on the ladder to be able to just like hold the door open because they're just, I think queer and trans people are fucking perfect um <laughs> even in all of our issues and our trauma um i was lucky enough to go to smith college which uh was yes a wonderful experience for me it's a fraud institution for some but it was a it was a wonderful institution to be a kid who had been really bullied for being queer their whole life yeah be in a place where there were so many trans and queer people and it was the norm to be queer um, and I feel like I, I tried to for sure. bring that energy to the writer's room um, and uh, and put a little bit of it in league, too, because the, the dominant culture dominates. And when the dominant culture is queerness, um, I think it dominates in a really beautiful way. Yes. And we all have our own issues to work through. Uh, and and queer, <laughs> queerness is has its own um, storied history where, where, where mistakes have been made, especially in in sort of. Um, 
inclusivity and intersectionality. And I just, yeah, I'm, yeah. I dream of an inclusive queerness that we can harness to overtake Hollywood. Um, these are my, these are my vast we sh- dreams. We share that dream. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love that so much. Uh, a cool thing about this episode too, is that it's directed by Silas Howard, who is a trans yes, man. Yes, we love Silas. He's such a fucking icon. I love him. Uh, yeah. I really look up to him. Um, he's a trailblazer. So one question that I've been asking everybody is what is their connection to the original film in 1992? What are your memories of first seeing that? Yeah, it's such a great question. I was a one in 1992, but I discovered the film. Uh, my mom showed it to me when I was like five or six and I was obsessed with it. Like I insisted on going to play t-ball because of it. I like was became obsessed with baseball. I like created a whole identity around liking baseball purely because of League of Their Own. Um, I am a very not sporty person. Um, I uh, I actually had a, I had a I had brain cancer when I was 10 and probably was born with a brain tumor on my cerebellum. So I have no hand-eye coordination. Um, oh, wow. So I like cannot catch a ball or hit a ball for many. I mean, I'm also like clumsy, but partially it has to do with my own like ability. So I was like, I was like the biggest baseball fan who wanted to be a baseball star, but um, also just could not catch or hit a ball, um, which was tragic for me, but also I really just like the outfits. Um, so I just like wore a right. baseball hat every day until middle school and like was obsessed with baseball, but truly could not participate. I, I bring up this excuse all the time as partially a joke when I was on set for for the L word, I would just knock into things and knock things over. And I was always like, well, I had a brain tumor in my cerebellum and I have really bad hand-eye coordination, <laughs> which is true. Uh, but also I'm, I'm also very clumsy and, you know, they, who knows, who knows chicken or the egg with that one. But um, right. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, you know, I, uh, I definitely couldn't, I, I, in, I couldn't play sports for a very long time because, because of having, yes. Uh, because of being sick um, and I still like developed a very strong identity around around loving baseball yes yeah but what a great what a great movie what a queer movie I, I told Will and Abby in my interview for The Room that I like when I watched it again for The Room I was like so confused that like Madonna and Rosie didn't kiss because I in my head had remembered them kissing and it being <laughs> a queer film and them being girlfriends and I was like <laughs> I was like why but it's a lesbian movie why do people think it's a lesbian movie there's nothing lesbian in it and I was like oh no it just like it just is like it just feels that way right which straight people didn't catch on to at all shockingly and it's been really disturbing some of the responses to the show uh from straight people homophobic straight people who are like what the fuck you like ruined this like this great american movie that was like for everyone and now you're not making it for everyone uh which obviously is uh a horrible misunderstanding it has to be straight for it to be for everyone it has to be straight and male uh and still unfortunately in hollywood like you know, yes, the center Tom Hanks. The the straight maleness is the norm. That is the universal norm, and you can yeah. only speak to universals if you are a straight white man. And it is um, right, very upsetting. Uh, yes. But <laughs> but um, I mean, I I I think I think the TV show is way more universal than the uh, than the movie, uh, and I love the movie very much. But I I think we I think we improved it. Um, Oh, yeah. I think that we're hitting on a lot more stories. I think that we're able to go deep and 
so much of it is played so real. I mean, especially one of the many home runs of the season for me is the relationship between Max and Tony and how, I mean, that's one of my favorite like parent child relationships that I've seen play out on TV. It's so well done. And it's complicated. And I think that was the thing that we were really trying to do with the show was like not make there be any easy answers. There are like, there are not really heroes and villains in the show. Um, and, and Tony's desire to protect Max isn't rooted in homophobia. It's rooted in like a real, I mean, obviously there are, there are levels of homophobia and levels of like fear of um, otherness, but really it's about like the deep desire to protect um her daughter. And like, I think that's why most people make decisions. And Tony is an amazing mom. Um, and, um, a- and has a complicated relationship with her daughter and has a complicated, and I think Ma- Max is like my, my nearest and dearest. I mean, I'm obviously the yeah. trans masculine writer in the room and like Max, um, a lot of who Max is came from this amazing book called Black on Both Sides, um, which is a, a highly recommend. Um, but it there's a there's a an essay in the book that talks about this trans masculine person who obviously they weren't using that terminology, but this person who um, was passing his mail um, in the fifties, and I was really inspired by that. So I'm a huge history nerd and like really, really interested in trans and queer histories. And so a lot of the stories in the show, obviously we had this amazing researcher, um, but I'm also like have a full, I'm looking to my right because I have this full bookshelf of just like, uh, like out of date queer histories, a lot of which are from like the eighties and seventies when like all of these like radical feminist presses were like publishing stuff. But uh, that book, Black on Both Sides, I like if you're a fan of Max and Bert's storyline together and you're a fan of Bert, like uh, highly recommend reading that book. What a great tip. I love that. Yeah. I'll definitely check that out. You know, speaking of Tony, Tony is sadly not in this episode, but there is a lot going on. So let's get into it. what are some of the main themes being explored in this episode besides, or we can include it, but I would say abandonment issues. Everyone's trying to leave. Yes. I was feeling abandonment issues. I'm like, stop trying to leave characters. I know it, the, the abandonment issues. And, and like, I think on the, on the, on the Peaches side uh, of this episode, there's a lot of like reactions to the trauma of what happened in the bar. Um, I think Greta is having like a trauma response, a PTSD response. She's also like, this 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 friend breakup that happens um between Joe and Greta in this episode is like heartbreaking. One of the things we wanted to do with the show was give as much importance to friendships as we do to relationships. Um, I think especially for queer people and also just like people who live outside of a heteronormative white society, the idea that that a friendship can mean as much as a relationship is really important. And it's just a lived experience, I think, for many of us. And this relationship between Joe and Greta is like a foundational relationship in our show. And this like breaking of the two of them, which starts 
uh, really at the beginning of the season with like Carson's presence and Carson sort of pulling Greta away from her rules and away from her boundaries. Then in episode six, when like Greta breaks her boundary by going to the gay club Mm -hmm. and like pushes Joe to break Joe's own boundary by going to the gay club. And then all of this happens. Like there's just a lot of fallout and trauma and pain that comes up in this episode for both of those characters. And meanwhile, like Carson gets pulled away by Charlie, who was another really interesting character for us to write in the group, because I think, you know, he hasn't been on screen for so long. And we did a lot of building of him and Carson's relationship. We wanted to really like pay service to that relationship. He's not a bad guy. He's a really sweet guy who really loves Carson. Is he? Um, I mean, I I am the misandrist um, of of all writers' rooms I'm ever in. Uh, if I'm I'm often the like only trans masculine person, and o- often also the 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 person who identifies most with masculinity in a room. Uh, I've I haven't been in a lot of rooms with with straight men. Um, I don't get hired for them, uh, though I would love to be. So it's it's funny because I. But if you asked anyone in the writer's room, they'd be like, well, Anne hates Charlie. Anne was the one who was like, I fucking hate Charlie the whole time. He's goofy and he's being sweet and he's joking with Carson. But I'm thinking, I don't care what they do. The queer fans of this show are not going to like Charlie. Like, I don't care how you dress him up. We're going to be suspect. Uh, but that was a really useful thing that happened in the room because I was like, I don't want people to like Charlie. I don't want people to like Charlie. And the other writers were like, um, believe me, we've been building this relationship between Carson and Greta. They're going to root for Carson and Greta. And I was like, right. I, was like I don't know. I don't know. I don't want heteronormativity to win. And they're like, don't worry. Um, as you it can won't. see, I have, I have, I have deep fears about heteronormativity. Um, winning yeah um but you know he ordered like for example he orders breakfast for her right at the beginning of this episode which was a thing yes a thing that was of much discussion in the writer's room and a thing that i was like i think we were we were looking at ways in which gender roles play out in very healthy heterosexual couplings sometimes and like it was very important for me and for and for for us in the writer's room to like be like okay but he's still a man in the 1940s. Like, even if he's the greatest guy on the planet, which I don't think we were trying to say, but I think we were also trying to say, like, Carson isn't running away from her relationship with Charlie because Charlie's a bad guy. Like, her identity issues are her stuff to work out. But at the same time, like, he orders breakfast for her and she is like, no, actually, I take my eggs this way. Which is giving me... Runaway Bride. Ooh, Do you know yes, what of course. Great. Right? Great film. Yeah. And for anybody listening who hasn't um, seen Runaway Bride, in Runaway Bride, uh, Julia Roberts' character doesn't know how she likes her eggs. And part of her journey to figuring out what she wants in life is knowing how she likes her eggs cooked. So when Carson corrects Charlie in that, it's like, yeah, Carson's figured out her eggs. Yeah. And she, and probably, <laughs> you know, at the, you know, beginning of the season, she would have let, she would have been like, oh yeah, he can order my eggs. I'll eat whatever eggs. I don't, I don't, I mean, right. I think one, one of the things we talked a lot about with Carson's character was sim- similarly to the Julia Roberts character, but I think in a, in maybe a more existent, more literal way, a more literally existential way, though the eggs are a beautiful metaphor was like the journey to figuring out what you want, because as a woman in society, as often any marginalized person in society, you don't get to have wants. You don't get to be the subject. You get to, you're the object. You are the thing that things are desired upon. You aren't the thing that gets to desire. And so 
which is when you're writing a TV show hard because so much of TV writing, which is also a, a, a thing that has been, you know, largely dominated by men in the past, like is about like characters having big wants. My character wants this thing uh, and he is going to go get it and he's going to fight tooth and nail to get it. And I think one of the things we really wanted to do with this show in terms of our our characters was to like make it complicated and make it real, make it okay to not know what you want and make a lot of what Carson's journey is to finding out like what she wants. And is it okay to even want anything like, and how to give yourself permission to like know what you want. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I'm working on in my own like yeah. life. It's like, <laughs> wait, how do you one know what you want and then allow yourself to want it? And that was a big thing. Right. Um, Versus a character like Max, who like really knows what she wants and is fighting her whole with her whole being to get to what she wants. But but in that journey, realizing that what she wants are a whole bunch of other things. And like, yeah, what the journey to getting what she wants, like teaches her all the other things she wants and all the other things she can have. And and she gets to like really rejoice in wanting more than what she just yeah. than what she uh than what she started out wanting. I love it how it's not just this overnight change and it's like, great, Carson now has a, a sense of herself and knows what she wants. No, it's like uh, one step forward, two steps back. Yes. You know, in, in, in some uh, situations like the eggs, she's like, no, now I know what I want. But then other things are still a little bit more confusing, and especially when we go into episode eight. She's not sure still how to um, have that confidence in herself and navigate situations. I also want to say that that is really, really smart that Charlie was so likable. And I never thought about it that way. So thank you about if if Charlie had been kind of a dick or had something that was really unlikable to the the core, we would have been like, well, no wonder, no wonder she's going to Greta. Right. Like, you know, so to make it clear that it had nothing to do with Charlie. And when we're speaking about wants, there's a scene, and this is more toward the end of the episode. Um after they talk out that, you know, Charlie has read the letter, they have a fight, you know, Charlie, whoo, very heavy of him to say whatever that thing is your mom, uh, that made your mom leave, you have that in you too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, rule of thumb, when, when you're fighting with your spouse, do not compare them to their parents. No, so. that is, that is a good, that is a good, uh, a, a really just good, like rule of thumb. One that I Life rule. Yeah. Definitely have, uh, have messed up before. Um, I think we all have. <laughs> acting exactly. No. Uh, yeah. Though, um, though, I don't know. I think also once we've, once we've, once we've all been in therapy and once we develop that language with our partners, like it can be the most revealing thing and the most useful thing to be like, okay. I can see how that you know once you're not fighting once you're like coming down yeah yeah then you're like this is let's talk about your mom you're right Uh, I mean at least (laughs) at least that you know but uh but I think I think it also shows I mean Charlie and Greta have known each other since they were little little kids they're family they love each other and she wasn't unhappy in the way that like we traditionally understand what it means to be unhappy like right I think without meeting Greta, without joining the Peaches, like, who knows what would have happened to Carson. But, like, I think it's also an important story to tell that, like, we are resilient as queer people and we, and as and as marginalized people, and often, like, we make, we've been making the best out of situations that haven't been perfect for a long time. But that doesn't mean that we yeah. want it all. 
Um, yeah. And that we, you know, I think it's one of the really important things to me about like telling queer histories is it's like, we have been queer forever. And, uh, and, you know, whether or not we lived, we lived that as an identity or whether or not we practiced it, it doesn't make us any less queer and it doesn't make our ancestors any less queer. And frankly, like, in my opinion, queerness is the norm. And like, uh, like white heteropatriarchal society is like an abnormality that we're forcing ourselves into. And that is like a, just a, a thing I deeply believe. And I think part of league where you know the audience response has been like oh my god everyone's gay everyone's queer and it's like well maybe everyone is like <laughs> I, I, I get in a lot of trouble in hollywood sometimes when i insist that everyone is queer or that everyone is is on a spectrum of transness um and it really is just like my belief that like it queerness is a is a radical opportunity to resist uh the hetero heteropatriarchal like white supremacist society and it doesn't mean you have to sleep with people of the same um of, of the same gender or the same sex assignment that you had at birth like it 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 really is about uh a freedom of identity and a and a resistance to um heteropatriarchal society. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm getting on my soapbox. We can talk about episode seven. I Can everybody tell that M went to Smith? I love it. No. So, so we have this fight and then, uh, you know, they kind of take a step back, they calm down and Carson says, what do you want to Charlie? And he's like, what do you mean? What do I want? And she's like, well, what do you want? Just start with something small. And he's like, I want to move the the bed in the room to the south facing side. And then she's like, I want to keep playing baseball. <laughs> <laughs> what I know that wasn't supposed to be funny, but I do. No, she's it like, is. Yeah, start small. And he's like, oh, yeah, I want to move the bed. And then she's like, and then I want this um, to be my life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is my like yeah. uh, huge want. Yeah. And it's like a huge character moment for Carson that she's able to say that. Yeah. To him. I get moved by those scenes with uh yeah. with Charlie and Carson because you really in this episode are seeing how much she's changed. And and he accepts it. He, he does because then they talk about kids and he said, Well, if you know, you're a ball player, you gotta keep playing baseball. But that's another thing, you know, he asked about kids and in an earlier episode, Carson's sister says something about their father already having to explain why his daughter doesn't have any children. Yeah. So it seems like, I mean, I think they've been married seven yeah. years. They don't have kids. That's very odd. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So is it that I don't know, like with Charlie, I wonder how much of it is that he also like, he's also kind of a weirdo yeah. and like for the time and maybe he doesn't really want kids too if he's okay with it or does he just love Carson so much he's afraid that if he were to put any pressure on her to have kids that she would leave like her mom I don't know <laughs> I mean I think it could be all of those things I mean I also think like when especially when you're a kid who is experienced like a parental trauma like having kids isn't so easy and like I think yeah. Carson Carson is the older sibling Carson is the one who like related to her mom a lot was was compared to her mom a lot was sort of more of a caregiver than meg who's the younger sibling who has kids and is younger and is doing all the right things so i think there's a lot of reasons why carson and charlie haven't had kids and i think 
it's one of those like biological clock ticking moments too of like when, yeah. what are you gonna have to decide like when when is this gonna happen and also I think the whole whole part of the show is like how long is this gonna last like I mean we know from history that like the right. 40s were a pretty positive time comparatively for queer people compared to the next decade yeah you know McCarthyism is about to show up and you know it's not it's not a simple narrative I think that's one of the things I I love about about queer histories is like it's not a narrative of like we were oppressed and now we are free it is a narrative of like cycles of like this was actually prohibition for example a really interesting time for queer people because the only place to drink were in secret underground bars so suddenly it was like there were gay people and straight people drinking in secret underground bars together and queerness worked its way into the mainstream and there were all of these queer celebrities and there was like a kind of social acceptance in high society of queerness and then uh and then you know then the tide shifts again and then there's a cycle of you know we see we see fascism and like neo-fascism and nationalism and eugenicism like coming in in the 30s and like changing that and then like in the 40s so you know not to give giant history lessons but I think it's a useful way to understand our time right now because I think we're entering a, a big cycle of conservatism again Boo. I'm really scared of it but I also think like we're not putting our fucking flags down this time and we're gonna try and I, I at least will do all, all, all I can just to just to, to help I, I hope we all do but it's like it's scary again and, you know, maybe yeah. for some people, it's always been scary. Um, there have been, especially, you know, for queer people of color, like the the ideas of a liberation are very different because of intersectionality and being attacked on multiple levels. But like, I think it's interesting in League of Their Own in this period of the 40s where it's like, oh my God, we get to play baseball. Like Max and Clance get to work in the factory, even though in the beginning of the season, like the two Karens wouldn't like, yeah. were so racist and horrible and wouldn't let Max in the factory. Like, what is this period of opening up? What is this period that feels like this big revolution uh, for women at home? Like, and how long is it going to last? And I feel like Carson and, and it's is feeling that in this moment when she's saying, I want to play baseball. It's like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want this to end. And I think that Joe is also feeling it too. Yeah. So if we go to the beginning of the episode, you know, it starts with Greta waiting and uh, keeping watch at the window for Joe to come back, not knowing what's happened to to Joe. Uh, we find out pretty much right away that Joe is traded to the Blue Sox. And then you have this great scene with Joe and Greta where Greta's trying to keep it light and suggesting all these places that they can move to, you know, Timbuktu, like just really unraveling a little bit. She's kind of manic in the scene, I would say, because she's just probably feeling a wave of emotions of Joe being back, but also severely uh, beaten up by the police. And Joe's like, you know what? I wrote down, she's packing up her things, but unpacking a lot of emotions. Like, <laughs> yes. like Joe yes. is like, I want to keep playing baseball. Like probably had a moment where she realized how close she came to losing baseball Yeah, and being on a, a team that's going to the championships. Like this is such a big thing for her. And that is a big want for her more so than following Greta around and even says, I'm not going to throw it all away because you're scared. Wherever we go, it's the same thing. You get bored or scared and I end up lugging your suitcase. It's a huge moment for huge. Joe to stand up to her best friend. It's one of the most heartbreaking things in the show, but it's also because it it shows like 
this big moment of growth for Joe and this stepping out into herself and also like this brush with death, like very literal, like physical harm. Um, yeah. And also, you know, I mean, Beverly saves Joe and we, we, we kind of figure out in eight, like why she did that. But like Joe, I mean, I don't have to go into the, the, the trauma of, of queer people in the police right now, but like <laughs> uh, if you read Stonebush Blues and you, you hear about these raids, like they were horrifying and they were meant to character assassinate as well as degrade and physically abuse everyone who was pulled in, especially queer women. Um, and it's a, it's a history that like needs, needs to be told. And what Joe, what Joe experienced in prison, like isn't gone into, but it was probably horrifying or in jail. Sorry, not prison. Yeah. It has made her realize that she needs to be, she needs, she needs to speak truth to Greta who has been the one in control and she needs to go after what she wants, just like Carson, um, which is to be the star that she's always been and always meant to be. You know, can the can the peaches go on without Joe? Um, it's the big question. Yeah, we we do hear that she's been traded, but we never see who they got <laughs> in exchange for Joe. <laughs> oh, we had to. We we wrote a whole we wrote a whole person that we didn't have time. We didn't had to get cut in the scripts. Uh, it was oh my god. Maybe she'll come back. Was she hot? Uh, I can't, no, I can't remember. I can't, no, the, the, no, I don't think. I'm kidding. They're all hot. They're all hot. Uh, I don't think, I don't think we got that far with her. I think she got cut way before, uh, way before we decided, uh, we decided exactly what she looked like. There's no time. Yeah. There's two weeks left in the season. There's no time to to bring in. To bring in a new character. But no, um, I mean, yes, every single person in the show is, is, is hot beyond belief. Um, yes. Um, I'm sure she would have been, uh, uh, Joe goes to the the Blue Sox. So Greta is losing Joe. And then at the same time, just like a a one-two punch, Charlie's back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we don't really get to, I mean, yeah, it feels like there's not as much Greta in this episode now because we're diving into the Carson and Charlie relationship. But but what a, I mean, I guess eventually, you know, Greta is at the train station. And this was kind of a a hard one for me because I was like, would Greta really just leave? I mean, based on what Joe says, she gets scared and and she leaves. But I'm like, was there ever any talk of maybe Greta trying to get herself traded to the Blue Sox as well to follow Joe because she just doesn't know how to be without Joe or... I think um, a couple things. One also that's important is that Greta breaks up with Carson in the episode where she says, like, this wasn't real. I mean, she doesn't like. Yeah. In she a, says, yeah. She breaks up in a really mean way. She's really <laughs> violent way. Th- th- this was always going to be a fling. Yeah. Basically, you're delusional. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, this was a mistake. This was a mistake. Yeah. It wasn't real. It was always going to be a fling. Yes. Yeah. Which is the most upsetting thing Carson could ever hear because right now she's trying to figure out if she's even real. Right. If her wants are real. And then suddenly it's like, none of this this is all before Charlie comes. Yeah. This is all right before Charlie comes. So now Carson is thrown, now Carson is thrown back into Charlie. Like Charlie's her only option now. And I think Greta, I mean, I think the way to understand Greta's storyline is just like, it's through her trauma. Like what happened with Dana, her childhood, love whose ring she wears who got taken away that is just like just an extreme trauma response to 
you know, this is, she's, since Dana, like, uh, Greta has developed these, like, strict rules for how she is going to be queer in the world. And she's never broken them. And she's very, she has these boundaries. Um, And Carson and falling for Carson has made her loosen those boundaries. She started to act like she did before Dana. Like, Joe says, like, she, you're acting like you did before Dana in, you know, calling Carson out, uh, calling, sorry, Greta out for being like, you're playing risky. You're playing risky. Yeah. And Greta this whole time has been playing risky. And so when this happens to Joe, everything crashes down in, in Greta's, like, in Greta's internal life. And she is like, I think the amount of fear and self-hatred and just like pain and PTSD all like flood her. And she does the, you know, it's like, it's fight, flight, or freeze. And Greta's is flight. Yeah. We all have one that we usually tend towards. And I think that's, that's Greta's. And, um, and Carson has to fight to bring her back, even though Greta hurt her so badly. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I it, it to me feels very true to relationships I've been in places I've been in myself where um and and queer relationships in particular where we like can talk about our traumas and where we have shared our traumas and like how do we make space for each other's um responses to trauma because they hurt they hurt each other. Uh we, yeah. we hurt each other with our responses to trauma but at the same time if we are able to talk about that and talk through it like we can build these relationships where we where we can support each other through that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm a big I'm a big therapy talk person, um, as you can see, um, because I think uh, we all have to heal. <laughs> I'm in uh, therapy three times a week, so I get you. Oh, I love it. It's so good. <laughs> Thank God for therapy. So I guess sticking with the peaches before we move on to Max and Clance and Esther, we have the Jess Lupe SD. And also, this is why I'm a little bit mad at Greta. Like, I know Greta has a lot going on, but at the same time, I'm like, you just lost Joe. You still don't know where, where SD is at this point. And now you're going to leave the team? Like, the Peaches won't have a chance. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Lupe and Jess are looking for SD. I know. I love we love story. every scene with Jess. <laughs> Of course. Oh God, Kelly's the fucking shit too. I, yes. Lu- I Lupe and um, Lupe and uh, and Jess's relationship is also one of those things in the show that like is very personal to me and came out. I mean, it. it came, I don't. I don't want to take credit for things in the show because we all they came out of all of our collective brains. Right. I will say that my best friend, uh, who was also the the person that I w- was in my first relationship with uh who's the star of that movie uh yes. Francis Man's name is my my best my best friend Ari um and he and I while we were dating and 18 called each other brothers or hermanos uh, um, uh he's uh he's Mexican-American and uh you know I'm a Jew from New York and we met our he carried up my my boxes the first day at Smith and he uh a lot of um I, I put a lot of him and me into uh, into Lupe and and Jess and Michelle Badio, who uh, yes. it, you had on the show, who is Love uh, one of my one of my best buddies. Also, uh, we put I think we 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 put a lot of ourselves into those two those two characters in that storyline, um, and and in our own our own relationships and and our own friendship. Um, so I yes, but believe me, I'm, I I will just say I don't want to take credit for anything in the show because it was a group. 
a group effort, but I, I see a lot of myself in the stories I shared reflected in it and it, and it brings me great joy. So I, I, I love that only to, only to say that I, I friggin' love their friendship and I love the, I love the SD, uh, SD Lupe Jess triangle and all of their friendships within that triangle are really complicated and beautiful. And I love the the resolution. How different would this storyline have been had Lupe and Jess heard about the raid? Because at this point, they've been out all night looking for Esty. So they probably don't even know that no the idea. raid happened. And they're the ones who've been going to this bar. Yeah regularly yeah like it's just very interesting that they miss i mean i guess it allows them to focus on (laughs) finding finding sd but we don't really get to see like how they're affected by what happened yeah they're they're like spared the trauma of the bar yeah um which i also think you know that was that was never i don't remember that being a discussion in the room as much as like we wanted to give we wanted to give uh, them, the three of them, a, a story that is sort of, and we, and we really want to give, um, to get, to give time for Esty to have her own story because she, we, we track it through the whole season, like how, uh, all these like microaggressions and also all the ways in which she is, um, excluded and feels excluded partially, um, because of her youth, but mostly because she's, uh, she doesn't speak English and she, um is latina and she's cuban and like she gets she gets um she sort of gets pushed by out into the fringes by the by the rest of the team and we really wanted to to give her a moment of like power and also yeah. a moment where she is like this is what i fucking want and what she wants because she's a 16 year old is to learn how to drive and that's what i wanted to ask because yeah how do you get to that decision mm-hmm. it was so i mean it's such a great an amazing choice to have her ask for that. But yeah, is it just because like, that's the age that you're like, like, what do 16 year olds, 16, 17 year olds want to do at that time? Like, how did that come about? Yeah. I mean, we wanted to really honor her being 16. Also, I don't know if people, we thought if I, I'm guessing folks have talked about this on this, on the podcast, I haven't listened to the other episodes yet. Cause I've been in L word production 14 hour days and like have not watched tv or listened to anything but that's um, the best reason not to listen to this podcast (laughs) (laughs) i i i I thought it was it would be a good good excuse um but i (laughs) you know we we brought in the actors a lot to talk to us during the writer's room um and they and i i am so in love with that part of the process because i think i love actors i think actors are geniuses i think they often are not given voices in Hollywood because because they one they get like they get all the glory in a lot of ways um but also like they have to show up and read what's on the page and mm-hmm. i think in their worst in Hollywood they get treated like meat puppets and in their best they get treated like real collaborators and nothing inspires me more than great acting and great performances uh, that as much as i loved writing the show like seeing these actors bring it to life like it just showed me things that we never could have written. Um, mm-hmm. And what was really amazing was that we brought all the actors in to talk to us. And I think Priscilla, um, who plays Esty, is such a cool person. She's so funny. She has such a way of talking and way of seeing the world that I friggin' just adore. And I think we all just got really inspired by talking to Priscilla and wrote this sort of zany story for her because she's freaking hilarious and yes. multi-talented and also like 
young and it was a little, I don't even, I don't even remember how it came up. I'm sure some brilliant person pitched it or it was an amalgamation of ideas, but, um, the idea that she wants to, that she one is like really pissed and really angry and wants to go home. And then when, you know, what she really wants, like a lot of us when we're that age is like attention from parent figures, mm. um, especially like, uh, Lupe, uh, wait, no, not Lupe. Yes, Lupe. Sorry, we changed we changed that character's name. And, and so the name that the character had throughout the writing process is different. Oh, um, what was so, it? Is that like uh, a, well, it's like a trivia sell. question? I probably can't now? Sell. Okay. I, I want just because it was a I think it was like a legal thing with I don't oh. I don't know how it works. Names are like a whole complicated thing that I don't totally understand, but they have to get cleared by the network. So at the last minute we had to we had to change um we had to change Esty and Lupe's names. So just if I say, I might say the wrong name and then you'll know what it is. But um, uh, but basically, um, you know, Lupe and Esty have this par- parent-child relationship, which gets explained in this episode when Lupe uh, reveals uh, the story about, about Lupe's daughter uh, who was taken away uh, when she was a child, when she was a baby. Right. Um, and, you know, we start to see that that's why part of why Lupe has this relationship with Esty that's been really contentious. And we also get to see that Esty is like, fucking be my big, my big sibling. Like, you know, I want you to love me. Um, and I want to feel love. Um, cause it's what, what we all want. And, and, and Esty's always, uh, Lupe has always loved Esty. It's just, she hasn't been able to show it, um, in the ways that, that Esty can feel. Um, and I think, she gets to really show it in this episode in like a really beautiful way. And Roberta is such a talent and a brilliant actor. I've been a fan of Roberta's for so many years. I saw yes. her in Fun Home on Broadway. Same, same. She is yes. so talented. And I think she often, she doesn't get enough amazing parts. Um, and I, I love, uh, I love how she plays Lupe and I, um, I'm, I hope we get a season two. So we get to, we get to see a lot more of, uh, Roberta's genius and and Priscilla's genius and Kelly's genius because those three are fucking amazing. Um, you know, when the reveal came about Lupe having had a kid, I mean, I was definitely not expecting that, and I was like, whoa. But at the same time, and in the amount of times I've watched these episodes, it's just Lupe is so mean to to Esty. Yeah, and I don't know and. I, this is just me personally, but I'm like, but why, why would the daughter thing make her be so mean? Like the thing that feels like why she's so mean to Esty is almost like a um, wanting to distance herself from her own Hispanic background. Totally. And, totally. and I know that's part, I know there are a lot of reasons that, that yeah. go into it. Um, but that, and, and then also sometimes when like you meet somebody and they're like a stage five clinger and you get that right off the bat. And, and then that's their first interaction. Like as he finds out that Lupe speaks Spanish and just like mauls her yeah. and Lupe's like, calm down. Yeah. If you've ever met somebody who's like that right away, you're like, Oh my God, I can't even give this person an inch because then they're yeah. going to take a mile and they're not getting the memo. And Lupe is so mean to her. So then finding out that she reminds her of like the daughter that she had to give up, it's just like, whoa, this relationship is so, 
so it's, complicated. But I guess I yeah. thought that that wouldn't that make Lupe want to be like a little bit softer to Esty if she reminds her of the daughter, or like like that it's a second chance for her to. I, I mean, don't know. I think, I think that's underneath it for sure, and I think she yeah. if she does love Esty. She loves her. She's mean to her, but. How many of us, you know, have experienced parents who are mean to us and we like think that that's how to show love? Like, that's also, I think, part of it. But I also think, you know, we we talked a drag lot me. about <laughs> drag us all. Um, uh, I think uh, part of it, too, we, we all in the room talked about, like, especially being a person who is from a marginalized minority, like yeah. there can be competition. I know. I mean, I, I won't speak to being. Uh, Latinx because I, I'm I'm white but like in my experience I've been in I've I've had you know experiences with trans white trans masculine people you know in theater for example who like don't want anything to fucking do with me and say terrible stuff about me behind my back because there is this fear brought on by you know once again our demon the white heteropatriarchal society that like there can only be one of us mm-hmm. and we cannot create camaraderie because camaraderie means that like we are associated with each other and to be associated with each other means that we can't be the token one who that who is the only one who like gets accepted by you know in my case like cis society um and so I feel like that that definitely is there there and and we we all all of us in the writer's room like talked about experiences of like it it being crushing that we that we can't find camaraderie between each other um, and I think what's really interesting to to transition a little bit over to the Max storyline with Max and I was Esther. Say it perfectly transitions to this. Yes, that is an example of of that phenomenon getting worked out in a very beautiful and positive way. Um, yeah, and a phenomenon of like at first Esther is sort of like, wait, can there be more than one? And then. And I think Max a little bit is feeling the same way for a moment. And then it's like, wait, no, we support each other. And we, and of course there can be more than one. And we, we do, we kick as queer people, as black people, like we kick the door open for each other. We hold the door open for each other. We make room for each other. Um, It's, it's, it's aspirational. And I'm like getting like teary thinking about it because it's like, it's one of the things that like, it feels very true to me. Um, and I love, I love uh, this episode for Max. It's, it's Max finally getting her shot on her own terms and the, and the terms that she gets her shot are another queer black woman um, making room for her. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's freaking awesome. I love, I love, uh, I love the red, right. All stars. Um, Marquise who uh, plays red, right. is a trans man and an actor and an activist who is fucking awesome. Um, I had no idea. He's amazing. Amazing. Uh, everyone should 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 be a big fan of Marquise's. He's um he he like Silas is a huge trailblazer. He has been uh trailblazing like Silas since the since the early 90s and um is a freaking icon in in queer and trans history and uh, we would not be here uh, without Marquis wow. and Silas. So oh, I have chills. I know he's amazing. Um, he plays Red Wright. He is a delightful person and a really good actor. Um, and uh, everyone should cast him. Um, 
and he looks like a superhero. So give him a Marvel movie right now, everybody. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's an interesting character, too, because when they talk uh, about him, Esther and Max are having a conversation about how he almost got signed by, I think, the Phillies, actually. Um, yeah. But, you know, like in all of those situations, uh, a GM would say that they were going to pull the funding um, for yeah. for the team if they were to ever have yeah. a, a black player and Max says, you know, somebody has to be the first one. And that kind of gives you more insight into maybe why, uh, why Red, I mean, I know Red likes uh, attention and, um, you know, he sees having two women, he's like, oh, you're going to be a double feature is almost like a, a gimmick. But part of him probably wants to give people a shot too because he never got the shot that he thought that that he deserved and that's what makes his team different than like the screws who didn't even want to consider the possibility of having a woman on the team right um yeah and it's i mean it's true it's like i mean obviously all of these are true stories about you know these amazing women who played uh who played professional baseball for black teams in the in the 40s and 50s like and they were given a shot in, in, in ways that they never would have been, um, on, on white teams, uh, or, you know, obviously there was still like several years, still Jackie Robinson, but, um, you know, I think the, these teams are incredibly popular and they, and they've been sort of erased from history. And, um, I think it's really, I want a whole team about the, the black baseball leagues of the, of the, of the forties and of the, of the, you know, first half of the 20th century because they were amazing yeah. um, and had this very uh we, we pay homage a little bit with shadow ball which was like this this sort of opening attraction but they were there was this like wonderful combination of like pageantry and showmanship and sport sport um that uh that was very playful um and also uh you know a great um great baseball um yeah and what what a difference too with Max. Uh, Max's first shot at pitching was just in front of the screws. You know this group of guys that she doesn't really even respect, and she chokes. And then we give her time to kind of figure out who she is without yeah. baseball. Now she comes back. She's put in in a real game with an audience, her best friend is watching her lover from the night before. <laughs> yeah. It's a good, <laughs> it's a, also maybe not her guy. It's like the most high pressure situation. Like if you're going to choke in a moment, you would think it's that, but like, that's how important the, the mental game is as a pitcher oh, yeah. that, you know, that Max was able to pitch under those conditions was because she did the, the work to kind of figure out. Yeah. What she wants. It's also the, the other like, wants. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a it's a metaphor also for how friggin' hard it is to succeed as a as a as a marginalized person. Like right. I mean, the thought that she could succeed in a in a after like these men are hurling these awful men are hurling insults at her after she's just heard her mom call her like potentially an invert this horrible word like after like you know she's had this like complicated relationship with this woman who like you know is maybe using her maybe she's like it she is you know she's had just all of these these extreme 
extremely emotional and like societal difficulties, which because of her identity and to be able to like one, have the strength of like a community, like which she just found the night before with at Bert's party, uh, Bert and Gracie's party. Um, she now has like the confidence uh, in herself of like her own identity and her own ability to stand on her own two feet. And she's in this like black space, like surrounded by people who she admires and who are family um, with Clance. And, and also like, you know, this is a game that we hear that like they, they go to every year. Um, so there's like a, a level of like a community and it's like, of course we need, we need community and we need safety and we need self-love to succeed. Uh, I don't know. I'm just like, we all must remember that when we're like beating ourselves up for like failures. It's like, it's, it's extra hard, um, uh, as a queer person and, and we need to, the mental game is, is the whole game, um, and the emotional game, um, whether it's baseball or it's, or it's, you know, anything else. Um, yeah. There, there's an interesting scene between Max and Clance where Max kind of stops Clance after Clance, you know, says like, oh, I guess, you know, you'll marry, you'll get married to Gary and have kids and we'll live next door to each other, blah, blah. And Max is like, you know what? I have to tell you something. Yeah. And I'm kind of like gasp. Like, yeah. is, Max, <laughs> is Max going to come out? But it's like as close to coming out yeah. as I think could have happened in that time and max says you know i'm not gonna marry gary i don't know if i want to marry anyone and also just so you know fyi i'm gonna be hanging out at my uncle Bertie's house and i'm gonna be there a lot more and he's not a freak and clance is getting all this information and you can see that she's kind of trying to make sense of it um and we don't know if if she ever totally gets what that means because it's just like such a different world you know she's in her her comic world and everything and like she she gets max she gets baseball but like this other thing it's kind of a lot to take in yeah it's a lot and i think you know in six we have we have uh uh bemi call i'm not sorry not bemi clance (laughs) calling um (laughs) bert a freak um which is like so painful but in this, I think in this episode, we see that it's it's like these two have such a profound love for each other. And like, right. There's like it, the, Clance just doesn't she doesn't she, she's never been exposed to any of this. And like, right. He loves Max more than anything and their family and they're each other's team. And that matters more than anything. And I think. Yeah. We get that and that's moment. what she goes back to. You know, she she's kind of like I might not understand what this means, but you're mine. And I'm always going to love you and support you and support what you want. Because like, I, yeah, I don't understand what it means that you're going to be hanging out at, at your uncle's house more, but I do understand that, that I love you. We're best friends and I'm supporting you. Yes. And whatever. And it, it's just such a, a beautiful moment before the game. And then you get to watch her cheering on uh, Max during the game, which is, uh, a beautiful thing. One thing I want to point out, I love the little homage to the movie when they throw the ball at Max and Max catches it. Oh, yeah. Dottie so Henson good. style. It's so good. <laughs> so good. I, 
yeah, I feel like it like every episode there's one of those moments uh yes. that kind of winks at the movie and it always comes in um in a different way than it was done in the movie. So it feels fresh, but it's also that fan service that we love. Oh, we love the movie. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Real quick, the one thing we haven't talked about in this episode is Shirley and Oh Shirley. Yeah. Oh my god! We love we love Caperland <laughs> so I much. Plug her show, which I saw last week in New York, which is so. I brilliant. saw it. Yes, I loved uh, it. it oh awesome. my god! The last ten minutes just so blowing good. my mind. Love uh, Kate to death. Yes, and I believe I haven't watched it yet, but Kate Berlant's uh, special that was filmed two years ago for Peacock oh, yes. got released. I can't wait. So to that, see that is on. Yes, that's on my list. Um. So Shirley, you know, when Joe gets taken away, he's like, I knew it. I knew it all along. But then the one crazy thing to me <laughs> is that Shirley didn't realize that Maybell was a mom. I feel oh, yeah. like. <laughs> no one did. No one knew Maybell was a mom. Shirley, see, like, is Maybell keeping it a, a secret because she didn't want to be like thought of as a mom or thought of as a bad mom for playing baseball and leaving her, her kids? Why, why was that something that didn't come to the forefront? Because if we're thinking about the original movie, uh, you know, I'm forgetting her name already, but the, the one with, right, with the kid, the, with the little the boy. Kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I think it was, I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak out of turn because I, I we had a lot of conversations about why Mabel about, about Mabel being a mom and about why Mabel doesn't tell anyone. And I think like part of her character is also that she's just like this bubbly, supportive person who like doesn't talk about herself. Yeah. And like no one kind of asks and she's not going to bring it up. And also there's, as we see with Carson, like there's so much stigma around leaving. There's so much stigma around leaving your kids. Even today, like being a working mom is like, where are your kids? Who's raising your kids? Like, right. you know, um, so I think that that could be part of it. Um, I also think like Mabel just wanted to be present and have a good time. Like, yeah. And her kids are only one part of who she is. Um, right. I think uh, I don't we, we didn't, at least to my knowledge, didn't have any like dark, dark reasons why we, we had talked about her. Um, the only thing I, I wish we'd gotten in the show, which I'm sure we just like did not have time for in the finale was like getting to meet Mabel's kids. Um, and hopefully <laughs> in season two we will. Um, um, yes. But, uh, yeah, I mean, she, she already like becomes the mother of that whole group, um, right. uh, in, in such a like fun and sexy and weird way. And she's, she's really Esty's mom, the whole show. She and Esty are like, she's the one who notices Esty's missing. She, she's a real caregiver. Yeah. It's also a sign of sometimes like we don't know the people closest to us. And right. I know there are things I I've had from friends for a dozen years who I'm learning like new things about because maybe it was just something they never wanted to share. Um, right. And yeah. And there's obviously a lot of fraught reasons for not wanting to share something, but I that makes that sense. And Maybell is another character like Jess who does a lot with the few lines that they get to oh have in God. the show. She's and <laughs> there was, there was one like right up top early in the episode when Maybell asks if everything's okay. And Carson just kind of panics and says that she had a dream about Mussolini and Maybell is like, mm, a sex one, I bet. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, Mabel's. Oh, she's wonderful. I hope she in season two we we get more Mabel. Um, because she is just a delight. 
Um, yes. Yes. The episode ends with Shirley telling Carson. I know about you. I know about you. And and this was one of, I think, the only episodes with Shirley where we don't get the comic relief. With, like, Shirley is at her most serious in this episode there there aren't really any funny moments for her she's like in a in a dark place feeling deceived feeling betrayed feeling um kind of like disgusted because she's been told that homosexuality is contagious and right bad and awful and all that but we'll see how that unfolds the next episode she's such a kate's such a good actor yeah. And like is obviously so hilarious as Shirley, but also um I love that in this episode and then especially in eight, we get to see some of her dramatic chops because she is yes and talented. Um yeah. More Shirley, more Shirley. <laughs> love Shirley so much. All um, right. So going into our end of the episode questions, tell me who's one of your favorite characters to write for and why. Okay. It's like picking a child's um, <laughs> slash fantasy um, best friend. Um, <laughs> I, I'd say that the characters I'm most related to were Lupe and Jess and Bert um, as our like trans masculine butch characters. And I like, love writing for them because I love, I feel like those friendships are so underrepresented on TV. Like there mm-hmm. are so few butches on TV. There's so few trans right. on TV that like, I loved helping to write those stories. Um, and I loved especially writing the Jess and, and Lupe friendship and writing the like Max and Bert family uh, relationship. But like everyone, I'm obsessed with Greta and yes. Uh, have a crush on her and working out all of my own um breakups of the last 12 years with with this character uh in good ways and in and in tough ones but um i pulled a lot on like extremely personal uh relationships when when kind of talking about that character in the writers room and her relationship with carson I, i'm just a a horny romantic and yeah the greta carson well, they won't they sneaking around forbidden love story just was so fun. And every time we worked on it, I just was like, oh my God. Um, yes. And I mean, who is better to write for than Darcy Carden and Abby Jacobson? Um, yes. I mean, all of the cast is so amazing though that I'm like, right. yes, they're amazing, but then also like all the other actors. Um but it's really the the hardest question to it ask. Is, but it is. but um, I I like that you said Greta. I can tell you the least my least favorite character to write for, which is Charlie. Ooh. But yeah. <laughs> I love Charlie. I've grown to love Charlie, but um, you know, uh yeah, you know, I don't think I contributed that much to Charlie. That's why yeah. I sat I, mean, I, I will say Charlie the the banter between Carson and Charlie, I Delightful. I did find it funny and, and kind of adorable and and Sanaz, um, who wrote this episode, like just knocked it out of the park with that relationship and like uh is 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 a cl- close friend. We've actually been in two writers' rooms together. She's an absolute genius. Um and uh yes, I'm glad I'm glad um I'm glad she was able to bring such like a heart to that relationship because it's just it's really special. Okay, so there's no crying in baseball, but there is in watching this show. <laughs> what was the most emotional scene for you to watch when you finally saw the episode? 
For me, it was Clance cheering on Max at the game because yeah. Clance has kind of tears welling up. And, I, and this, this happens every time. Whenever I talk about the scene that made me cry, I like am fighting <laughs> back tears right now. But that friendship is so beautiful. And Bemi is just such a oh, she's fucking so good. brilliant, brilliant actor. She's so talented. And the... Like the way that she can do over the top stuff, but also the subtle stuff of just she's being so in the stand and just the way she's watching Max, like brought me to tears. I'm like, get out of here with that. <laughs> I Someone give her an Emmy. <laughs> I completely agree. I think Bemi is a genius. I hope she is just cast in everything because I want to watch her do anything. Yes. Yes. And she can make anything work. She is like a writer's dream um also she was a writer on the show right. and is one of my just favorite people she's like the coolest person ever i yeah. like just adore her um yeah i think i think it's a scene we were talking about before um where like max kind of comes out to clance in a in yeah. a not coming out coming out way um yeah. and clance is accepting and loving and we we repair that freak not a freak um yeah thing and it just like it does everything that I hope the show does in that little scene where it's like a celebration of queerness a celebration of friendship of platonic friendship and just like a joy in like being seen um and in that moment like Clance really gets to see Max yeah. um and it yeah it just it's like it's aspirational in a lot of ways for like what I want, what I, what I want for, for all, all of us, um, is a friendship yes. like the two of them have. Um, and yeah. Who is the MVP of this episode for you? I'll share mine. It's Jess. Uh, it's yeah. Jess because, because of Jess's move with going to get the Cokes. I know. So good. So good. Yes. And and uh, knowing knowing exactly what needed to happen and fixes a huge fracture that, you know, uh w- without just having done that, who knows what would have happened? Who knows if if Esty would have come back, if you know. So MVP points for for Jess. I love that. I I I fully co-sign Jess as an MVP. I'm going to say Joe, um, even though she's not, she doesn't get like a full run in the episode. We just see her up top, but like Joe standing up for herself and like that, that fight between Joe and Greta is like so powerful. And I think Melanie Field is uh, a friend who I adore. I've known her for years. We went to grad school together. Amazing. Um, And she is so talented and I think the work she does, even in just like that short scene, um, it, it it becomes a sort of theme of the episode of like, how are we going to stand up to the people closest to us in our lives? And how are we going to change, try and make changes to these, these, these like foundational relationships. And it's like, we see Carson doing it. We see, um, you know, uh, Lupe and Esty doing it. We see Clance and Max doing it. And like, Joe is the one who has, the hardest time and sort of kicks off that, 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 um, you know, sort of overarching arc of the episode thematically. So I'm giving yeah. him an MVP point. Um, All right. 
Any strikes in this episode for you? Anything that you wish had been a, a different choice or when seeing it, you thought like, oh, you know, if I could go back and change that. I don't know. That's so hard. I think there doesn't have to be. No, I mean, all I, will, all I will say, and it's, and no, nothing is perfect. The show is definitely yeah. not perfect. Uh, I think as a writer on the show, like 10% of our ideas, maybe less, get into the show. And uh, because this was a room full of like queer people, pri- primarily queer women, all of the ideas were amazing, in my opinion. Right. <laughs> um, and there are, there are ideas that like I wish had made it into the show I am proud, though, of the 10% of ideas because they all came from us um, and they are authentic voices of of the people who um, who wrote them. Um, but like, oh, my God, so much more. I mean, also, like, I, uh, you know, I just directed Forbes as the L word. I love a fucking sex scene next season if we get one. I'm putting a ton of sex scenes in this. <laughs> Bill and Abby will let me. They may I yes. actually strike that from the record. Be, well, you can leave it, but Will and Abby, if you're listening, know that when you rehire me, I'm pitching a ton of sex. They won't be surprised. I pitched so many yes. sex scenes. I am the like the horny emotion boy of yes. the show. And I want all the characters to have hot sex scenes. Um, so that's that's always gonna be my like next season. Um Yes. No, you're making your case right here. I'm <laughs> making that. my I'm making my case right here. I the fans also, want it. I also think hot sex scenes don't have to have any nudity. Um I have yes. lots of thoughts about hot sex scenes. You'll when you see my my two episodes, no, my four episodes of the L word, but particularly two of them. <laughs> I really am proud of two of the sex scenes I directed, and I uh, I hope the fans like them. Um, and th- those scenes are my pitch for season two of League. Um, and I love that. I can't say any more about them. I would like to talk about them, but I, I must. For me, the one strike was when Max finds out that Esther is the pitcher, and then they get kind of heated, and Max throws the ball and kind of throws it through the banner. Yeah, it was a little a little contrived. Well, it just, I'm like, it, it wasn't like a good representation of her pitching ability. Like yeah. it just seemed, it kind of was just like throwing, like throwing a glass across the room or something. Like I like, I would have liked to see Max like hit a very specific target with that ball to kind of like blow Esther was, away a little bit. That was, I'm pretty sure I could go back in the script. But I think that was how it was written. It was supposed to be a blow away moment. And I think... I'm sure it just was like a, something that happened in production where it ended up being yeah. a banner, which like, j- yes, I I can totally imagine how how that went down. It was definitely written to be more what you're um, what yeah. you're after, and I think yeah. it just sort of felt a little contrivy in the in the in the shooting of it, um, and just uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, it should have been. It I can't remember. I should go back and look at the scripts. What it was, but it definitely was like hitting a target or like breaking through something really strong or like something that was just like more of a mic drop moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I wanted more of the mic drop, and instead it just seemed like Max was like having a tantrum. Um, I hear you. And what was one home run for you of this episode? Oh, um, I mean, I, I think the thing that like continually impresses me about about what we did with the show is being able to service so many character stories in such a short period of time. Yeah. And I would say the thing that impresses me is like the fact that we get like a 
like a, a well-crafted story for Lupe and SD. Yes. And Jess, a well-crafted story from Max, Clance and Esther and a well-crafted story for Carson and Charlie. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a nerd writer who's like all about structure and I'm like structurally and craft wise. I think we, we nailed the, um, we nailed the, uh, the, the arcs, the ability yes. to have all the arcs, which, um, is really tough. And, in some episodes works better than others, but like that was, that was our big goal. And I'm like, we did a good job. Did a good Love job. that. Yeah. Great. Well, um, this has been such a great conversation. Uh, please let listeners know where they can follow you uh, on social media and plug a couple exciting upcoming projects that you have. Yes. Um, so you can follow me on Instagram. I'm a, a fledgling TikToker, but please don't follow me there. My TikTok is <laughs> terrible. Uh, my, my handle is m.weinstein. Um, I, uh, yeah, my, I directed four episodes of the new season of L Word Generation Q. The show premieres on November 18th. I directed episodes three, four, seven, and eight. Um, it's going to be a wild and fun season. Um, I, uh, I have a couple more shows I've worked on, but they're not, they're not coming out in the near future. So I'm not going to plug them, uh, mercilessly, but, um, you know, I will say that like, I am the my my goal is to help and support um the queer and trans people especially who who want to work in hollywood i don't have a huge amount of power yet um but you know if there's any uh if there's any way i can help folks um even just like please follow me and reach out and like i just want to like help build build our community and um you know, I, uh, I'm really grateful to be on this podcast. I'm really grateful to have worked on league. Um, and I'm like really grateful to, uh, to my queer and trans community who are just like, the sorry, dog, little, little gremlin Ewok looking dog is, uh, interrupting me, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful and I'm going to, um, make my dog stop talking. Em, thank you so much again for joining me today. I love this so much and we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching the show. Thanks again for listening and remember to subscribe and rate five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can follow the podcast at League of Their Own Pod on Insta and you can follow me at TGI Carolyn. And remember, it's probably not a great idea to dump your girlfriend two minutes before her husband shows up. Take me right back to the track.